Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Charles M. Schwab not to be confused with the current U.S. investor Charles R. Schwab, but Charles M. Schwab was born in Williamsburg, Pennsylvania in the 1800s. He began his working career in a Carnegie steel plant. However, he didn't stay as a common worker for very long because he had a great skill of making friends, creating a great working environment, and getting work done. Thus, by age 19, he was made assistant manager of the plant, and then by age 25, he was manager of the plant. He was so successful managing there that after a bloody riot and strike at another plant, Carnegie moved him there to improve the morale. And he did it. He improved morale. He improved the productivity and community relations. He was so good that by age 35, he was made president of all of Carnegie Steel. He then went on to merge several steel companies together and later formed Bethlehem Steel. By the World War I, he was so clearly the best at doing this that President Woodrow Wilson made him the director general for the production of the ships. Schwab had a knack for knowing how to get things done and help people enjoy it while they did. All of this makes it incredibly surprising to know how Schwab <laughs> responded to productivity advice from Ivy Lee. Ivy Lee was a well-known productivity consultant, and he met with and gave simple advice to Schwab. He told him, what you need to do to be more productive is sit down and write down the six most important things you need to do. And then work on number one on your list until you're done. doesn't matter if you don't get through anything else. Work until you get number one done. And even if it's all day, the next day, make number two number one and work on that. After he gave him this advice, Schwab said, well, how much do you want me to pay you? And he goes, you don't need to owe me anything. All you need to do is, after a few months of trying this, write me a check for whatever it's worth to you. After a few months, Ivy Lee received in the mail a check that today would be worth about $400,000. Keeping number one, number one, is so hard for us to do. Keeping our priorities straight. You know, we often get caught up with trivial matters, and then a couple hours later, the thing that we really needed to get done today is still start sitting there unstarted. And that's not true just in our work lives, in our lives, in our homes, but even in our spiritual lives, we can get distracted. And this morning, we come to this famous story of the sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus' interactions with them. And it's not a story of someone choosing something good and someone choosing something bad. Rather, it's a story of someone choosing something good and someone else choosing something better. You know, as we look at this story, we're going to see three things. And if you have a bulletin, you can see these. First, in verses 38 and 39, we see two devoted disciples. Then in verse 40, distracted, deserting, and demanding disciples. 
And then lastly, 41 to 42, a disciple's primary duty. The beginning in verse 38, we see that Jesus comes to an unnamed village, and there Martha welcomes him. As you know, Jesus had no place to lay his head, and so his disciples and he always had to be welcomed into people's home. Martha's willingness to do this must have been very costly in effort and time. And then if you look at verse 40, she even calls Jesus Lord. And thus it appears that Martha is a very devoted disciple of Jesus. And we're not given all the details here, but if you look at John 11, we know that this little town is in Bethany and that she also has a brother named Lazarus and the sister Mary that is mentioned in this story. In fact, in verse 39, we're introduced to Mary, and this is the third Mary we've been introduced to in Luke. So not to get confused, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Then in Luke 8, there's Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out from her. And here is Mary, the sister of Martha from Bethany, all three of which those women are different. Well, this Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words. And like Martha, this is evidence that Mary is a devoted disciple of Christ. While Mary sitting there listening might seem like a normal activity to us, it was anything but for their time and culture. In their culture, rabbis did not give formal instruction to women. One Bible scholar noted that later Jewish writing said, May the words of the Torah be burned. They should not be handed over to women. Now it wasn't that women couldn't listen to the rabbis teach. That wasn't the problem, but they would have never been given a prominent place at the feet of the rabbi. And then when it became time for their work to be done, making the meals, they should go and do that. And yet Jesus often breaks the mold of how people act and think. Not only here is he doing something that was different than them, but in John 4 we see a similar thing. When he has an ongoing conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Not only was he engaging a woman in extended conversation as a rabbi, but a Samaritan woman. Jesus did not allow the cultural customs of his day, if they were wrong, to shape his thinking. Even after his resurrection, Jesus will allow his primary witnesses to that historical event be women, even though in their courts at that time, women were not allowed to testify. Jesus and the Bible are constantly elevating the worth of women showing that before God, men and women are equal. Now, some may hear that and go, well, I'm not so sure that's true. Isn't the Bible kind of oppressive of women? And yet the reason we think that is because we bought a false assumption. And that is we bought that assumption that if we're going to be equals before God, then everything in our life has to be exactly the same. And yet that's just clearly not true. Biologically, neurologically, physiologically, men and women are very different. And in many other ways, God has made us different. And God did that for a reason. Because though we all have the same dignity and worth before God, He made us male and female. And He's given us different attributes that complement each other. And these show and ultimately reflect God. Let me give an example that may help. You know, in a play... There's a director, there's stage managers, there's people who work on lights, there's the main actor and actress, and then there's secondary actors and actresses. And yet, every single one of those people in the play is of equal worth and value. If you walked up to any of them, you should show them all the same level of respect and concern. 
However, in the play, some of them have a greater role to play. They are more visibly seen. Does that mean they're more important? Not at all. Just because they're seen more, maybe have leadership like the director, doesn't mean they are of more value. God has given each of us, male and female, a role to play in this world. We have different roles, but each of them is valuable. Each of them is something that God has given us to do. And we don't need to say, oh, well, I've only been given a role of walking on the stage and dancing and walking off. That's not important. No, all of us, all of our roles are important. You know, sadly, this often gets denied. And so men and women can be in conflict. And men neglect and abuse women. And women neglect and abuse men. And yet God has made this beautiful complement to male and female where we're both equal before him. Yes, what often happens is we start comparing ourselves. And as we compare ourselves, we lift ourselves up and we put others down. And that's what we're going to see next because Martha and Mary are both showing great signs of devotion to God, to Jesus. But Martha starts comparing herself to Mary. And as she does that, it's going to lead to distraction, desertion, and demanding disciples. Our second point in verse 40. Because while Mary sits at listening at Jesus' feet, Martha is fretting. She's worrying over all the ways she's serving Jesus. And we're told that Martha was distracted, which literally means she's pulled away. She wanted the master Jesus to come, but now, rather than being with him, she keeps getting pulled away and distracted by the preparations that are needed for the meal preparation. You know, biblical stories often only give us the bare minimum, and so we don't know everything that's going on in our mind. But I know what maybe would have been going on in my mind and my actions if I were Martha. Well, I'm sure glad Jesus was willing to come into my house, but this is taking a little longer than I thought. Well, no worry. Mary knows this is her role. She'll be in here with me. No minute. We'll get this done. No problem. Mary's not here. Well, I'll walk, I'll walk in the other room and get Mary's eye and kind of give her the head nod. Walks in. Mary keeps staring at Jesus. Walk back. Now the kneading of the bread is a little louder. The moving of dishes makes a little more noise. And Martha walks back in and Mary goes, Martha, are you okay? Oh, me? Oh, I'm fine. Just serving some extra guest. I'm fine. No problem at all. Don't worry about me. So Mary thinks, oh, she said, don't worry. So I'll just sit here and listen to Jesus. So Martha goes back in and thinks, why didn't she catch the drift? I didn't want to say in front of Jesus that this is really hard. You know, I kind of give this air that I just threw this meal together. It was no big deal. It wasn't a problem at all. It was really good, wasn't it? Did you want the recipe? But it, hey, this meal was no problem. I just threw it together. Why isn't Mary in here? This isn't fair. Didn't, why didn't Mary get the hint? Back to Martha. How can she just sit there? She knows all the work I have to do. What is going on? And the joy of Martha being a devoted disciple, serving Jesus, it's no longer there. Because as she compares herself to Mary, all she can think about is, it's not fair that while she does nothing, I have to work. She's deserted me. And thus, it's not only the beef that's starting to simmer. Inside, her anger is slowly growing. It's about to erupt. And that's what happens. Inside, we're having these conversations and we're getting angrier and angrier as we keep 
feeding ourselves these fuel to our fire. And then it comes pouring out. What we're thinking comes out in words. And so she doesn't go talk to Mary, but she goes and talks to Jesus. She basically says, look, I'm slaving away. Martha's desert, Mary's deserted me. And you have to wonder at the back of her mind, she's thinking, and you know, Mary really shouldn't have been doing this in the first place. But here I am cooking. And she says something a little bit accusatory. She says, Jesus, don't you care? Now, in some ways, the question is asked in a way that doesn't imply that. Like you might say to your child, didn't I tell you to clean your room? Well, clearly implied to that is yes. Everyone knows the answer is yes. And the way Mary at Martha asked, it's implied that she knows Jesus cares, but it still leaves open the possibility. Maybe you don't. She's like the disciples in Mark 4.38 when the storm arises on the Sea of Galilee and they say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? You know, they're challenging him. Well, being distracted and feeling deserted leads not only to questions, because Martha now demands, command her to help me. You know, how often do we find ourselves in Martha's shoes, wondering, God, do you really care? Not only that, but then we flip the tables and we put ourselves like Martha saying, look, yes, I just called you master, but I really want to call the shots. This is how my life should be going. You shouldn't have made my life like this. Will you please command that it'll go the way that I think it should be going? You know, we would never say that. But as the heat of life picks up, sometimes that ugliness comes out and reveals what was inside. And this story shows a sad but real phenomenon, and that is sometimes our efforts to serve God get in our way of us loving God. Here I am, God, use me. But not like that, or that, or that, or that. I kind of meant, here I am, God, use me the way I wanted to serve you. That, that's what I meant. And yet God doesn't always have us serve the way we want. You know, are we the master, serving him how we want, or is he the master, us serving at his beating, bidding? Hopefully not beating. And we're also a lot like Martha, where we begin to compare. And then we begin to look down on others for their devotion to God and lift up our devotion to God. For example, you may hear of an outreach to reach those needy children in the inner city who don't have good parental involvement. And so you go once, and you think this is really good, so you go a second time. And a second time leads to a third, and then over a couple of months you start taking roles of leadership. And then you start telling friends and your friends are really excited that you're doing it, but they don't really want to come do it themselves. And over time, you start asking more. And though others think it's a great ministry, they feel called to serve other ways. And now you start to get a little bitter. Don't they know that we're supposed to serve widows and orphans? This is that type of ministry. This is what they should be doing if they were really devoted to God like I am. And what happens is we begin to grow bitter and self-righteous because we're comparing our service that God has given us in our life to their service. And thinking that the way I'm called to serve God is the way you too must serve God. Now it might be that some friends should help. But it also might be that God has given us different areas and roles in life. You know, Our love for children doesn't mean that every godly person will love children's ministry. Our passion for deep theological thinking 
does not mean every Christian must share that same passion. Our willingness to come up and clean or take care of the facility doesn't mean that everyone else is a bum, good-for-nothing bunch of hypocrites because they didn't show up at the work day. Now, again, it may be that they should help with the children. It may be that they should care more about theology, and maybe they should come clean the facility every once in a while. However, we have to realize our sinful tendency to compare ourselves to others in our service to God and think we're better for what we do and they're worse because they won't do it. You know, to question the sincerity of other Christians because of their roles of service and to smugly congratulate ourselves is showing that we, like Martha, had become the distracted and deserting disciples, not them. You know, someone deserting our plans for serving God does not mean they've deserted God himself. However, Jesus is now going to show Martha that the issue is not with Mary, but that Martha has gotten her priorities screwed. What she needs to understand is a disciple's primary duty. And we see Jesus explain this in verses 41 through 42. Verse 41, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Jesus repeating Martha's name shows his tender concern and compassion for her. And Martha had questioned, Jesus, do you care? And Jesus is showing, yes, I deeply care about you and your sister Mary. Therefore, since Jesus cares, he uses his spiritual surgical tools and he cuts directly to the heart of Martha's issue. She's anxious. She's troubled. Again, notice the problem is not Martha's actions. Jesus didn't say, well, Martha, the problem is you think food matters and service is important. What you need to realize is that doesn't matter at all. He doesn't say that. Rather, the problem is her attitude, not her actions. And like Martha, anxiety and worry often plague us. They can often cripple us. Where all we can think about is what might happen. What could the future hold? How are they going to respond? And in our perpetual angst, we're stuck. We're crippled. We don't even know how to take the first step. We'll flip over two chapters to Luke chapter 12. I read these verses at the beginning, but I want us to note them again. Luke 12, verse 22, beginning there. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not even able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Jump down to verse 31, because Jesus concludes, Indeed, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Imagine a man whose job is to oversee a lighthouse. It's by a rocky and dangerous coast, and he loves his job. He's devoted to his job, and every day he makes sure that light is shining its brightest so no ship will come in harm's way. But over time, he begins to notice that the interior of the outhouse is a outhouse, sorry, the lighthouse is a little outdated. 
and the yard in front is looking a little shabby with a lot of weeds. So he starts to spend a little more time decorating the inside. He begins to make sure the weeds are taken care of and subtly, without even realizing it, every day he's spending more and more time on making sure the inside looks nice and making sure the lawn around the lighthouse looks good. And he becomes so distracted that over time, build up, builds around the light so that one night the light goes out and a ship wrecks. None of the people on that wrecked ship will come up to him and go, well, at least the inside of the lighthouse looked really good. Well, at least there were no weeds in the lawn. That's, that's really important. They're going to say, well, you had one job. You know, all the other stuff wasn't unimportant. It doesn't hurt if you have extra time to make sure the place looks good. But you had one job. That was your primary duty. And like that man, we can get distracted from our primary duty and let all these secondary things cripple us, distract us from what is best. Jesus gave a parable of different types of soil. And in Luke 8, verse 14, he talks about seed that was cast amongst thorns. And he says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares. It's the same word that Jesus uses for Martha's anxieties. They are choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And so we have to ask, like Martha has the anxieties of life slowly choked out your concern for God and His kingdom? Has what should be primary slipped into a non-essential concern for you? And the challenge for all of us is there's no external standard by which you can check that. You can't go, well, I've read my Bible this many days this week, or I've gone to these many service events, or I've been to this many or this type of religious service. You externally, Martha looked like the most devoted disciple there could be. But internally, her heart was being pulled away by various things. And so we have to be willing to do the hard work of examining our hearts, of being ruthlessly honest with ourselves to consider, am I seeking God and His kingdom first? Or have I allowed other priorities, maybe even good things, to slowly choke out what is best. Now you can regularly be in the church, you can regularly be in the Word, and the whole time you're thinking about other things. You're overwhelmed with anxieties and cares. And yet notice the anxiety-curing freedom of this. You know, for those of us who are hamstrung by our anxieties for our future, anxieties for our children, for our finances, for places and people we love, notice God says, you have one primary duty. You consider Jesus' words. How many of us can even know for sure we're going to be alive an hour from now? None of us. We don't even know what's going to happen an hour from now. So let a, why worry about what's going to happen a day, a week, a month, a year, ten years from now? God will care for that. You focus on Him. Seek first his kingdom and all these things shall be added unto you, Jesus says. So thus in verse 42, Jesus gives a contrast between being anxious and troubled about many things with realizing there's only one need, only one necessary thing 
You know, that's a really an important part of maturity. Knowing what's needed versus what you want. Every parent knows the cries of, I need, I need a new fill in the blank. And wise parents say, well, you don't need that. You want that. And yet even as adults, we can think, I need. And our Heavenly Father says, you don't need that. You want that. So what is it that you truly need? Even if you're not a Christian, what is it that you think that you truly need? Well, the amazing thing is the one thing we truly need is the thing that Jesus has given us. What we need is God. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to God. We had lost being with God due to our sin, yet Jesus came dying in our place, rising again so that we might be and know God. And so thus Jesus continues in verse 42 of chapter 10 that Mary has chosen the one necessary thing, the good portion, or it could be translated the better portion. You know, Jesus here makes a subtle play on words because a portion is referring to food. That's what Martha is so concerned about, food, and yet Jesus is saying, no, she's chosen the good portion of food. Martha, you're focused on what's going to fill our stomachs. And that's not bad, but there's something better. Mary realizes that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by the very word of God that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know, at the feet of Jesus, Mary is consuming a feast far greater than Martha could ever prepare. She is eating the words of the Lord himself. There is no more important meal than these words. Not only has Mary chosen what is best, but also Jesus adds, this will not be taken from her. In other words, the food in the kitchen can wait. I'm not going to rob Mary of the food that you want to prepare to go prepare something for me because I'm giving her a feast. Now, this is a very important story, but we also need to realize the context of the story because it helps us understand it. Because notice what came right before this. If your Bible has section headings, you'll notice in chapter 10, verse 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And someone might read the parable of the Good Samaritan where the lawyer is trying to accuse Jesus and then he's trying to justify himself by saying, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus turned around and said, no, the question is not who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? And one might leave the parable of the Good Samaritan and think, okay, what it means to serve God is I need to go out and do a lot of good things. I need to be actively serving God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Well, isn't that what Martha thought Mary should be doing? I'm a neighbor. Mary should be in here helping me. Don't you see someone in need and help them? Isn't that what the Christian life is about? Well, yes. But it's also about sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him. And not just that, but next week, chapter 11, verse 1, prayer. It's not just about soaking in. It's about a relationship, communing with God. And yet we can get these distorted where we make the Christian life all about serving. Or we can make it all about what we need to do is just sit and learn or It's all about being with God in prayer. And yet it's not just those three, but many things. And yet these three stories are showing us that it's not just your actions. It's not just your prayers. At times we need to be still and know that He is God. And so the point of this story is not 
activity versus inactivity. The problem again is not Martha's actions, but her anxiety over everything but the main thing. In fact, her actions are quite good. Jesus praised those who welcomed his disciples into their homes. In Romans 12, 13, we're told to practice hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 says, if we don't fail to show hospitality, we might entertain angels. Well, if it's a blessing to entertain an angel, what kind of blessing is it to host the God of the universe in your home? However, while Martha chose something good, Mary chose something better. When you can hear Jesus' words, specifically at his feet, one should realize which one has greater priority. Now the applications and the challenges of the applications of this are legion, but let's just wrap up by considering three. First, consider the hectic, frenzied way we often celebrate Jesus' birth and resurrection. We could have picked any Sunday, but we'll pick on those. Like Martha, we're often so busy enjoying the event of what God has done that we never stop to sit and go, wow, look at God. Let me rejoice in what He's done. We're so busy celebrating the event that we never stop and celebrate God. The celebrations have become more important. And you know, it's sad if you talk to many church staffs, the greatest days are the days after Christmas and Easter because they're so harried and hurried from all of the celebrations. And yet those should be the climax of our times of delighting and sitting at God's feet, so to speak. Second, these verses should cause us to realize the gift of singleness for serving God. And you might be scratching your head thinking, where in the world did that come from? Well, I say that because in verse 40, Jesus uses the word from Martha of distracted. No other place in the New Testament is that word used. However, the negation of that word is used in 1 Corinthians 7. And there, Jesus is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7, the way that singles can have an extra devotion to God. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 32. It says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your... Same word, but the negation, undivided devotion to the Lord. Without distraction, devotion to the Lord. Now we need to be clear, Paul's not saying serving your spouse is unspiritual. He's not saying it doesn't matter to God if you're married or being married is worthless. The issue is one of degrees and directness. During World War II, everyone in the U.S. rationed so everything could go as much as possible to the war. Thus, everyone served the war effort, though the soldiers on the front line had the most direct service. Likewise, everything a Christian does can be service to God, whether you're married or unmarried. Yet it's clearly true. If you're single, you have extra time that you can devote to God. You have extra energy that does not get pulled by someone going, Hey, 
let's do this, or hey, I want you to do this. You know, singleness can be a great gift from God to serve Him. Thus, as Christian married adults, we need to be aware of the fact that we can often be pushing singles to getting married as though this is where you really want to be. Well, married life can be great, but so can single life. If you're ever at a church that's looking for a pastor, you should be willing to consider single men. Singleness can be a great avenue for serving God. Now, the application, though, is that this is a gift of singleness for serving God. Singleness, just so I can serve myself more, so I have more time for my hobbies, that I can spend my money more on me, is not what Paul is talking about. The gift of singleness is not, hey, I get more from me. It's I have more to serve God and his people. So singles in this great season or maybe permanent status, are you using your time and energy, your extra for God or yourself? Third, whatever your state, married or single, we all realize or need to realize the vast amount of distractions to our primary purpose of knowing and being known by God. Last year, Tony Ranke wrote a great little book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, and he entitled the first chapter, We Are Addicted to Distraction. Dings, beeps, rings, notifications, they're constantly pulling us away from what we were doing to, hey, pay attention to me. Hey, you need to watch this. Hey, you need to look at this. And as Ranke notes, we love it. We love being in connected. We love being in the know. And... It's more easily to avoid those things we didn't really want to do in the first place. You know, we now have a fancy word for being distracted. We can multitask. Now I can do five things really poorly. I only used to do one thing really poorly. I'm a multitasker. We are distracted people. Now it's not just a 21st century problem as though before there was ever electronics, no one was distracted. Martha was distracted in a world where she didn't even have an electric oven. You can be distracted in any age, but we have to realize the pool in so many ways. And we have to turn things off. Silence. Do not disturb so that you can be still and know that I am God. You know, we have to carve into our lives times in which we don't allow other good things to push out what is best. So if you took... Ivy Lee's advice to Charles Schwab and wrote down the most important things you need to do today. What would be number one on your list? What is the one thing you have to get done today? You know, there's lots of things to do. There are many urgent things to do. Some can't wait. Some have to be done and some are demanding that you pay attention to them and you have to because they need to be fed and washed and had clean clothes. And so sometimes we have to take care of these other things, and those aren't bad. We shouldn't beat ourselves up about that. You have various stages of life. We have more time in which we can be devoted in times of prayer and reading. And if you're in a time where all these things make that less, you don't need to beat yourself up. But are you still with the time God has given you, carving out? Nothing else will interfere. This is the time I am going to be with Him. And yet, we can beat ourselves up. I don't know how you hear sermons like this. You might be, oh, yeah, I knew it. I haven't done anything all week. Oh. But hear again the words of Jesus. Fill in your own name. Jeremy, Jeremy, you're anxious. 
You're worried about so many things. Come to me, the best. I'll never be taken from you. He doesn't say, Jeremy, you idiot. Why are you doing all these other things? Jeremy, Jeremy, fill in your name. And he beckons us back to him. He's not angry and bitter. He's offering. Look, you're letting all these anxieties. They're not bad, but be concerned about your primary thing. Knowing and being known by me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your tender care and compassion. Lord, we get pulled by so many good things and yet they can lead us to miss the best. Lord, may we today focus on you and delight in knowing you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.